Welcome to the Stable Moments Podcast. So happy you're here and so excited for you to meet our guest this month. She actually gave us such rich content that we are breaking it down into a part one and part two. And uh, her name is Shannon Doa. She was plagued and embarrassed by her name, which was made worse by a nomadic childhood that made it impossible for her to build lasting relationships. She developed a tough skin at an early age, but along the way, she learned to deal with the disappointment, push through discomfort, overcome adversity, and accurately gauge people, which were all qualities that have actually really helped her succeed. After spending nearly 20 years as a law office administrator, she became unsettled by the ever-revolving door of people coming into the criminal justice system, and she wanted to find a way to change it. She attended Coach U and became a certified life coach. And working through that program, she began to understand her childhood in a way that she never had before. She began researching and learned that there were nearly 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. And she set out on a mission to tell her story and educate the general public about the grim realities of a life that she had always tried to hide. Through education, she believes that some of the grassroots solutions that she offers, as well as ideas and solutions from others, could change the lives of children and the landscape of the country. So she's totally right up our alley as a guest. And um, she is the author of multiple award winner winner garbage bag suitcase an ebook entitled setting your vision and defining your goals and is also working on another book hiking for stillness she's the president and owner of shafalo consulting um, and she's a trauma-informed specialist focused on holistic trauma-informed project management implementation training and consulting services oh my gosh so if you need someone like that she is your girl so she's just incredible I am going to let her do the talking, but I'm going to roll that intro and then you will hear part one and the next episode out in a couple weeks will be part two. I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community, and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Hi, Shen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Stable Moments podcast. We're excited to have you. And I know that we have a lot to cover because you have, you've just done a lot um, and a lot that is really relevant to our audience and what we talk about here. Um, But I know that you are a survivor and alumni of the foster care system. So can you start there and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on. It's super exciting to be here with you and your audience and and to sort of tackle some of these big topics. But 
Yeah, I aged out of the foster care system at 18. And we can talk about the, the aging out process. But maybe even before then, people sometimes ask how I got the name Shenandoah, right, which is a bit of how my story into foster care starts as well. So I always joke and tell audiences that you get a name like Shenandoah at my age, because you were born in California in the 70s. And so it's a it's a time and place specific thing. And so that's sort of where my story begins. Um, I was born to a mom who had multiple addictions, who suffered from mental illness. And much of my childhood was in a traveling fashion. So we never stayed in one place for very long. Um, before the age of 13, I had moved over 50 times and attended over 35 schools. So it, it was very much a, sometimes you're here for a week and then you're gone um, existence. And so never placing roots, mm-hmm. which I think stems from a lot of that, right? And combined with that, a mom who is suffering from addiction, a mom who is suffering from mental health issues also combines with a lot of physical abuse, a lot of emotional abuse and leads to unhealthy situations in which sexual abuse can occur as well, right? So we get all of this this mixing together into one instance and not having community, not having connections, not having roots. It's hard for red flags to be sent up because we often say, well, how come nobody did anything? But there's often circumstances in where people don't have roots. And so it's hard to know or even remember that those people existed for such a short period of time. And and that was very much my childhood. At the age of 13, uh, we had made our way to Michigan. So I call it the reverse Oregon Trail. For, For those of your audience members who remember Oregon Trail, the video game, I always say it was dysentery in reverse because we were making our way from west to east versus east to west. And um, my mom was originally from Michigan, and I eventually entered foster care in the state of Michigan. Um, When I entered foster care, it was not, uh, I self-reported myself. So it wasn't that, Mm. that some big event had occurred. In fact, I had spent that summer back in California with an aunt, had come back. Nobody was at the airport to pick me up. And so I convinced the the flight attendant at the time to just let me take the city bus to my grandmother's house, which was the only person who in that community wow. uh, way before 9-11, way before security sure. standards. And they sort of just allowed that to happen, right? So we would hope it wouldn't happen. Uh, unfortunately, it still does happen that way. Mm-hmm. But I went to my grandmother's house who was living in a senior living community. Um, so she had a little apartment, right? And a little kitchen, but they gathered for meals and did activities together. We're sort of familiar with those types of places. And after a few days, people started asking questions because you can imagine that this 13-year-old girl, just normally a 13-year-old girl in a senior living community is going to stick out, but one who is suffering from lots of trauma and having lots of behaviors associated with that trauma sticks out and they had threatened to actually evict my grandmother or I had to leave. Mm -hmm. And so I was faced at 13 with this decision of, do I call the authorities on myself or do I become homeless with my grandmother? Mm. Like those, those were the options I was faced with. And while it might seem um, from where I sit now, the easy decision was to call the police. You know, I really grew up in an environment with a lot of mistrust and distrust around the police, 
they had been involved in my life plenty of times where actions weren't taken. You know, I had seen my mom violently beaten and raped where the police were called and nothing was done. No one Mm. was arrested. And I had seen other instances of, of police misconduct, so to speak. So I didn't just readily trust the police. Like that mm-hmm. wasn't an easy decision. Like, oh, call the police. They'll, the, they're the good guys kind of mentality. I, I wasn't raised that way. The other piece of the way I was raised is that I was literally raised to distrust the police and to lie to the police mm-hmm. to the point of not giving my actual name to doctors, to the police, to teachers, right? Like I went to school oftentimes under a name that wasn't my name at all. Mm-hmm. And so when you're raised that way, it doesn't seem logical that you would call the police and be truthful and right. honest, right? And, and invite them into this situation. Right. Yeah, it's just not something that we do. And and then thirdly, like calling the police, you were considered a rat in my community mm-hmm. or a tattletale, right? And and that also had negative connotations. So like that was a really hard decision for a 13-year-old girl. And what finally convinced me, and I talk about this a lot, like why media matters and why who we see in media matters, right, is because I didn't know other foster kids. I didn't know what that meant. I I didn't know, like, what does that mean to go live with strangers, right? right? There was no roadmap to that, to know, oh, that's safe, that's good, that's a great idea. And what finally convinced me was the movie Annie, because that was really this idea of an orphan was like the only thing I could wrap my head around. And what Annie really tells us is, is like the first part of foster care is really bad, but you get daddy Warbox, mm-hmm. right? So there's this bad part, but then it gets really good. Mm-hmm. And in comparison to the bad part of Annie, to what I was going through in real life, it seemed manageable. Mm-hmm. Like the bad part didn't seem so bad because like kids weren't getting beatings. Like they were eating three meals a day. Like, these were all things I didn't have. Right. So I was like, okay, it kind of seems cool, this orphanage thing. And then I'm going to go live in a mansion and get a dog. Right. Like that was how my 13 year old brain thought. So I called the authorities on myself. They came, uh, a police officer arrived with a social worker. They did about a 20 minute interview. And what I had really convinced myself before they got there was tell them the very least amount of information you can, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I convinced myself I wouldn't be a tattletale if I just said just enough, not the whole story, Mm -hmm. not the abuse that had been going on for 13 years, but like, hey, my mom has disappeared and we know that she suffers with drug and alcohol. And so that's the story I told. And that 20 minute interview convinced them that I should be placed in care. I was put in a social worker's car and I'd never see my grandmother or my family again. Mm. Right. I would also never get daddy Warbucks, but I would very much experience the first part of the Annie story over Mm. and over and over again and be re-traumatized in that way. And then finally, at the age of 18, unfortunately for me, I turned 18 halfway through my senior year of high school, which means you're on your own. Mm -hmm. So You haven't even reached high school graduation, but the system sees you as an 18-year-old adult. So tough luck. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to really, at that time, manage how do I get a high school diploma? Sure. That's it. That's all I was trying to do. I didn't have college aspirations. I didn't have these big dreams. I was just trying to get a high school diploma so I could continue working at a hardware store that I had been working at to pay my way. Um, I convinced my last foster home 
to allow me to stay if I paid them what they had been receiving from the state for my care Mm -hmm. instead of becoming homeless because I was in a rural location, isolated. There weren't apartments near the high school. There wasn't a busing system. There wasn't public transportation. And, And so I convinced them to allow me to stay. They agreed to that on the exception that they get a raise, a $50 a month raise from what they've been getting from the state. And so from from December until May, graduating from high school, I was working every possible shift that I could to maintain a roof over my head. And in that process, then didn't have money for things like personal hygiene products, or, you know, tampons, or deodorant, or any of those kinds of things which then is causing trauma and issues at school, mm-hmm. right? Because you now have this 18-year-old girl who isn't functioning. I was a kid who entered the system between the ages of 12 and 13, and I was still at the age of 18 wearing the same underwear I was wearing when I came into mm-hmm. the system, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's what I was still dealing with. Like, strawberry shortcake was still on my underwear at 18, right? Like, as a you're the same size human at 13 as you are at 18, right? right? So so it's these kinds of things that begin to play with you also mentally, that you're also trying to survive from. And so I made a commitment to myself that I would never speak about foster care again. Hmm. On the day that I graduated from high school, I said I would never tell anybody and I would never talk about it again. And I would never talk about what had happened to me before foster care. And I wouldn't talk about what happened to me and my experiences within foster care. Mm-hmm. And I kept that promise for a good 17 years. Wow. Um, and I, I've been married to my husband for 20 plus years. And he only learned about my experience in 2016 when I decided to write the book. Wow. Wow. Ah, so much there. So much to unpack. What an amazing story of resilience, really, and just survival. So you never were able to locate your your bio mom during that time. Yeah, my my biological mom never showed up to court. So like in most states, kids are required to go to court every 90 days when their case is there. And and at the time I was there, kids were required to appear. Um, And my mom never showed. But what people didn't understand what was happening every single time my mom didn't show is that I was stuck in a fear, right? There was a fear that if my mother showed, would I be able to say what needed to be said, right? Could I do it? Could I face my mom? Could I face the biggest monster in my life? Hmm. And, and at the same time, if my mother didn't show, what did that say about me? Mm -hmm. If your own mother won't show to tell you that she loves you, then are you unlovable? Mm -hmm. Because lots of other adults are telling you that you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah not just with words, but with the actions and in the way you're treated as well, right? So so my own mother can't love me, clearly, right? This is how you're thinking. And even if she does show, do you have the courage to do what needs to be done? But if there's a no-win situation, right? No matter what happens. And then you sit there and you have lots of really smart, intelligent people, right? You have people with really advanced degrees. Almost everyone around you has a master's degree in the courtroom. 
the caseworkers, the judges have doctorate degrees, right? Everyone is really intelligent and not a single soul asks you if you have what you need Mm. or how are you feeling or what is going on for you or what is this doing to you Mm -hmm. and no recognition of that. And when you do that year after year, I mean, I tell people I've logged more time in a courtroom than most attorneys. And listen, Mm -hmm. my husband's still a practicing attorney and I spent 20 years of my career in, in law offices. Right. But it's like, before I turned 18, I had logged more hours in a courtroom than lots of people. Mm -hmm. And when you get that kind of repeated remarks and that repeated, uh, you don't matter, we're just waiting we're just waiting for you to turn into your parent, right? Mm. And people didn't have to directly say it. People did directly say it, but they also indirectly said it, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're just going through the motions because when this kid turns 18, we'll be lucky if she's not pregnant. I mean, that's what everyone thought. Mm -hmm. And then she's going to be a drug addict and then we'll just deal with her in the criminal court system Mm -hmm. because that's what we do, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why we see the pipeline from child welfare to, to prison and, and that, Uh, you know, I have a daughter now and there's a 93% chance that my own daughter would be in care only because I had been in care. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that recidivism rate of that is so high. So, so people are just checking boxes and going through emotions and not really thinking about what is the harm of all of this when someone is literally not connected to anyone. Yeah. And this assumption that uh, a, a situation's hopeless or it doesn't matter, or let's just kick the can or move it along. Um, or we just, know the outcome already. Right. What am I going to do? Right. I already know the outcome because I've seen this a hundred other times and it always goes the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was fortunate that I had a teacher my senior year of high school who took an interest in me. I don't know why, because I was a horrible person. Like, I, I fully admit, like, I wasn't some angel child. Sure. And I, I think we have to get away from that. Like, when we talk about foster care in general, we try to, like, villainize and heroize everybody. And right. it's, it's just not that. There's just a lot of gray area. I wasn't the worst kid on the planet, but I also wasn't an angel. I had a lot of things going on, and I wasn't always a great kid. I lied. I got into fights. Right? I did all kinds of bad behaviors. Mm-hmm. I yell. I swore. I I lied about where I was on certain days. (laughs) Like I did it all. And for whatever reason, this teacher took an interest in me and thought I should go to college. Now for me, the idea of college was like, are you kidding? Like me to go to college. And she just said, you're gonna. And so she sent me to the, the, um, uh, administrator's office. And he looked at me and said, Shem, kids like you don't go to college. And I remember having this conversation with him. Because usually when I say this to people, they're like, oh, how could he ever say that? I remember looking at him and going, I know. Can you go tell Mrs. Clark? Like, I totally agree with him. Yeah. Every She's adult the crazy one. That. Yeah. She's the dummy. You go tell her. Because this particular teacher was like known to be kind of stern and like rigid. It was like, so I'm not getting into it with her. You go tell her, you know? And he said, people like you just learn to serve people like me. And I was like, I get it. Right. When I look back at that now at my age, I'm, I'm of course mortified. mortified. (laughs) But at the time I was just like, I get it. It wasn't like he, he stabbed my soul. Right. right? Right. But when I went back and told Mrs. Clark, he stabbed her soul. 
and she took it super personally, right? But frankly, she got mad and I thought she was mad at me, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's taken me 30 years to unpack like, I wonder what that conversation was like after school, right? Because I now get the play that I didn't get when I was in the situation. Mm -hmm. And so she got me all kinds of applications to college, but the truth was I couldn't afford the application. Sure. I mean, I couldn't, even to the community college, I was giving every penny to my foster parents just to not be homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to be homeless in a really short period of time. So there wasn't money for an application fee. And she ultimately wrote a check out of her personal checkbook to go to her alma mater, Michigan State University. And that's how I got into college. Oh my gosh. Uh, was her $150 donation to my application fee and a lot of student loans. And that seems like it should be the happily ever after, right? Great, someone took an interest in this kid, thankfully, got her into college and we're all set. But the truth was, is in my first term of college, I tried to commit suicide three times. Um, I remember laying in my dorm bed thinking, if I disappeared, no one would even call the police to come look for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was so disconnected from everything and anything. My age didn't match my stage. Yes, I was physically an almost 19-year-old girl in my first year of college, but mm-hmm. I was trapped at 13 mm-hmm. because I hadn't done any healing work and I struggled. And it ultimately took me eight years to get my degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask how you um, were able to get out of that foster home, but so you went to actually be at school. I was homeless for the summer before college started, Mm. lived out of a car, lived out of my car. Um, That was not a nice car. We could talk about that. The Ford Escort, Tiffany Haddish and I have a lot in common. She lived out of a Ford Escort. So did I until I could get to campus and then had to sell my car because freshmen couldn't have cars on campus, which was like a really painful point. Mm -hmm. And I had nowhere to put the car, right? But I needed a car and it would come to fruition and haunt me over and over throughout my early twenties that I didn't have that car Mm. (laughs) because I had to get a job because the campus didn't serve food on the weekends. Uh, you know, the, the cafeteria was closed and I didn't have any other resources. And most kids were buying pizzas and drinking beer. And I didn't have those kind of resources to do that. And so like, I was like, I got to do something. And so I had to get a job mm-hmm. and I went to the student union where two jobs were posted for college kids with zero experience. One paid kind of dates me. Right. But minimum wage was $3 and 25 cents an hour to be a receptionist in a law office, which I thought I, that was like, what? I could never possibly do that job. And the other job was making $2,000 a week to be a stripper. Those were the choices. Now, I mean, I, I joke with people and say, it tells you how bad I am with finances. And luckily for me, my husband's great at it. Right. (laughs) Cause I said in my brain, Hey, I'll go to this, this minimum wage job. And, and when I don't get it, because I won't, then my backup is the stripper. Yeah. Right. It turns out that I went to that job and I got it. But I only got it because I was white, skinny, and pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. And it was with a lot of guys 
who just said, you need to smile and wear a skirt every day. Mm. Okay, well, I can do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we can talk about where that led because that led me to where I am today. What we don't usually talk about is what happens if I'm not one of those things and I don't get that job and I end up stripping because where would I be now at, at 46 years old as that person on that path? And that, and that person still feels very much a part of me and who I am, but I know the judgment that comes with that, right? Mm-hmm. How long does it take to get the boyfriend who's abusive? How long does it take for the unwanted pregnancy, for the drug addiction? And what does that, and how do we begin to judge that person without understanding how they had to come to make that choice in the first place? Because yeah. it's like, well, they made a choice to do that. And it's like, when the choices are very limited, it's actually the good choice, mm-hmm. right? And when I'm with live audiences, I say, how many of you would take, before I tell them what the job is, how many of you would take the $2,000 a week or the three twenty-five an hour, right? And everybody raises their hand for the 2000 a week. It's right. easy money. And then it's like, okay, but then we begin judging that human for their choices mm-hmm. without really backing down again to root cause, right? Yeah. Which is what gets me so passionate is that it's easy to say, Oh, well, she made this choice. It's like, it wasn't all choices. Yeah. It was a lot of luck and a lot of being put in vulnerable situations with men, which I was really used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was comfortable. I knew what to do in those situations, but I was able to use it in a way to propel me to something else with a lot of pain, by the way, there was still pain involved. And this way, the pain is just much more obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you and so like- here, I was able to work 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, and they loved it. They loved that I wanted to come in on Thanksgiving and work. And what was I doing? I was avoiding the pain of not having anywhere else to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just could pour myself into work. And I see this happening in modern society, right? We're starting to call out like this idea of toxic positivity and the hustle culture, right? Mm-hmm. And this whole like... It's really people running from pain. Right, right. In reality, but but we take it to an extreme and then we try to glamorize it that it's some right. good thing because these good things happen. Yeah. And I say it's just like running. I hate running. I'm not a runner. I'm more of a hiker, right? But like there's a place where like running is good for you. You run a couple of miles, you feel better about yourself, you get a little exercise, you clear your head, right? But you can take it to an extreme where you begin doing these ultra marathons and it becomes really unhealthy and your body is literally breaking down, right? It's like everything can be these extremes and we're trying to find a balance of healing. And I think it's a sweet spot of that balance. No, you don't just want to sit on the couch every day eating donuts, but ultra marathons is it could be equally as bad for your body as sitting on the couch eating donuts, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of space in between. And that's what I said, like the choice that I bought, no, my drug wasn't heroin, right? My drug was this work addiction and it almost killed me. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do see that so much that glorified and people essentially proving that they're worth something by Mm -hmm. producing, producing. And it's so easy to everybody to run their patterns on each other. And I worked until 5 a.m. or, you know, all through the night until 5 a.m. on Saturday. Oh, really? I gave up my whole weekend just for, you know, and it's like this tit for tat of who's worth more, who's more productive. And, and people aren't happy. Get up at 4 a.m. What time did you get up? I get up at 4 a.m. every day. This is what I hear a lot. It's like, what time did you get up? Right. 
and everyone's getting up earlier and earlier. And I'm just like, what is going on? I like to sleep. Right. So, but that's that toxic mindset of not like when I'm doing that, I don't have to be focused on me. And we see this in foster care and social work. We see it in teaching. We see it in lots of helping fields, nurses, right? Where I can be so focused on who I'm helping that then I don't have to think about what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. Because look at, I'm helping these people over here who are way worse than me. Mm -hmm. I think this is our obsession with reality TV. Mm -hmm. Those people on reality TV are way worse than my family, way more dysfunctional than my family. So we don't need to do any work because we're not them. Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love the, um, like, especially as a new mom coming to the realization or understanding that like you can kill yourself to meet your kids needs or kill yourself being a mom and a wife and a, and a worker and a, you know, opening businesses and all of these things. But what you're doing is setting an example of that's what they need to do. And I don't want my kids to feel like they shouldn't have any time with their kids or that they, they have to empty the dishwasher instead of going for a walk or, you know, right. So So I say this when I work with organizations all the time and in pre COVID, this was a really popular one because I do a lot of work in schools. Right. And so I'd be with principals and they'd say, if I could just get my teachers to take a lunch during the day, I just know the morale would be so much better which is like a really awesome thing for a leader to say, right? Like they just care that much about their staff. They just want them to take care of themselves. And I would say, that's pretty amazing. Do you take a lunch? (laughs) And across the board, they would say, no, we don't take a lunch. And I'd say, do you know that it turns out that 90% of the behaviors we do are things we've seen other people do? (laughs) Not things people have told us they do, but things we've seen people do we just mimic it. And it starts mm-hmm. when we're children, as you know, I'm sure you, your child has done something and you thought that's my husband or that's me or that's right. Cause that's what we do. We mimic behaviors and we begin doing those things. So they're like, no, I'm like, here's a really easy way. If you would like your staff to take a lunch, you have to take a lunch. And it turns out you don't need to hold a staff meeting. You don't need to implement a big plan. Just start taking a lunch and see what happens with your staff. And mm-hmm. before COVID, I had one principal who said, I'm, I'm taking the challenge. I'm not going to say it to anybody and I'm not going to do anything. I'll sometimes eat in the, the, the teacher's lounge. I'll sometimes eat at my desk and I'll sometimes eat in the cafeteria with the kids, but I'm going to eat a lunch every single day. And he told me after 30 days, 60% of his staff was eating lunch. Wow right? Because we begin mimicking the behaviors. So what we're mimicking, and then that turns out to kids, right? Because if teachers don't care for themselves, then who do kids see? Mm -hmm. They begin mimicking, like, my teacher's constantly hustling and working, so I better do more homework. Mm -hmm. I need more homework, right? And when their parent is also hustling and working the same culture, then it's like, well, everyone's working, I better be working. And you see kids who are super stressed out, who are involved in 150 activities, who have a tremendous amount of homework load, right? Because we pass it down to everybody. And then kids feel like they need to be working as much as parents. And parents are mimicking leaders and bosses, and right? And this goes everywhere. It's so true. It's so true. Because, and everyone says, well, I don't have time to take care of myself. All you're teaching is that nobody has time to take care of themselves. And if we take care of ourselves, we're selfish. 
Right, right. And if we work on our stuff, if we go to therapy, then there's something wrong with us. That's what we begin mimicking without saying a word. Mm -hmm. Our words can say, no, no, you should play. No, no, you should do this. But when I talk to teachers more often than not, they say, I would love kids to have more recess, but I'm being state mandated that we have to do X, Y, and Z in our classrooms, right? Mm -hmm. But why are you state mandated? Because they've been told kids have to do more, right? Because it's this culture of we all need to be doing more, more, more. Mm -hmm. Instead of a culture of like, wait, play turns out to be really important for critical thinking, for social learning, for every soft skill every employer wants, we learn through play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't actually learn it through our math book. It turns Mm -hmm. out I could send someone to training on that math problem or that that very technical issue, but I can't teach soft skills. Mm. Right. So our whole process of thinking about that is intertwined into these things that have happened to us in childhood that we don't give ourselves time to heal from because we're too busy doing all these things to make everybody think we have it all together. Yeah. And, and like stepping back and understanding, are we aligned with what we say we believe? Because that principal would say they believe that lunch matters and that their teacher should, but the, their behavior isn't aligned with what they say. And even my husband's a teacher and they're supposed to have two planning periods. And now that's been cut to one plan planning period, but there's not enough subs. So they actually don't have any planning periods because they're covering other teachers' classrooms. And so, and then he gets an email every single morning that says, these are all the classrooms that need to be covered today. Which ones are you taking? And he has a huge sense of guilt if he has to reply back, I actually need my planning period, or I actually was going to use my planning period. And I told him like, just say that. And he's like, well, you know, you're kind of the teacher that never covers. And you know, it's just a culture of, right. So he's yeah. like, so let's not call because it a planning nobody, period. Let's call it a, right. you're going to cover somebody's classroom period. Well, let's call it that, that this is different now, right? Like, so now let's call it what it is and let's, let's talk about that. Right. And let's get into the culture that's developed that. So I worked at, I did some work as a consultant in a residential facility where they had 24 hour staff and we came in to do this big Uh, trauma implementation, which is not just learning about trauma and resilience, but like, what are we going to do to change our behaviors? And I do this in schools all the time as well. But in this particular thing, we were doing trainings at really different hours because we had to catch the overnight staff, right? So we were doing training sometimes at 11 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. or at six o'clock in the morning to sort of catch at the end of their shift or the beginning of their shift. And what we started to hear was something very different than from the people who work the eight to five in the organization, right? And the people who work the overnight shift were like, when you would say, what's the thing that needs to change here? They'd be like, I need to go to the bathroom. Mm. Right. I hear this from teachers too. It's a common teacher thing too, where there's no time to even use a restroom. Right. But it's like, I just need to go to the bathroom. And when we brought this to the administrative staff, they were like, what, like, that's ridiculous. Anybody can go to the bathroom. We're not mandating bathroom breaks. Like, no, there was nobody to cover kids and the kids needed to be watched. Right. And you have so few staff members. There's nobody to watch the kids while they go to the bathroom. Right. And what the staff had found out is that most incidents happen when they go to the bathroom because the kids time it. Oh, there she goes to the bathroom. So now we're going to go do this behavior because nobody's watching us, right? Right. And so so they didn't want to then deal with the after effects of that. So they just stopped going to the bathroom. 
And so you have this whole culture where then that, then they're complaining about that to other staff. And it's becoming toxic within the staff because then the staff who isn't on the overnight shift is like, well, I won't eat my lunch because gosh, you know, they can't even go to the bathroom on the overnight shift, right? Because it begins, that culture begins seeping over. And so when I just asked the CEO, she's like, I never go to the bathroom when I'm at work. You go a whole work day without using the restroom? Like, this is just like the insanity of what we do. And she's like, I never even thought about it till you brought it up. Well, and that, that is the truth, right? Because we get so it, embedded it in became, our patterns. That's right. That we just never even thought about it. So here they are thinking, you know, what can we offer? Can we offer yoga classes? People no. just wanted to go to the restroom, right? Like, but you don't ask. You just think like we're doing all these things and nothing's working. Well, and, and what like, you get, what you get like pissed about too, is you're like, I don't want yoga. I don't want an hour of yoga. And then you get to check a box that you like served our self-care needs when you didn't listen to us or ask us what we needed. Like, and so then you get people more chatter, more toxicity because they're responding to your, you know, ill-planned culture boosting activities. Uh, right. A- right. And so in November, I was, um, I was at a meeting that was uh, in a district and it was all the superintendents from the area. It was like a district wide meeting. Right. So we had all the board, school board members and all the superintendents together gathered. And for us, you know, I live in Northern Michigan. So snow days are a thing, right? Like we love a snow day. We don't care if you have online school, we still want a snow day. It's culturally part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so I said to them, you know, we get so many a year and depending on the winter, we don't always use them all, but right. And I said to this group, it'd be really wise for you to use all of your snow days this year. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I was like, listen, Maybe you only get an inch of snow where I get in Georgia that would close the entire state down here, right? We laugh at that. Like we need feet of snow to close school. I'm like, but people need help, mental health days. Mm-hmm. If, if any year has taught us anything, it's been this year of COVID, like people need mental health days. So if you have an excuse to close school, this is the year. You know what their feedback's been? This has been amazing. We've had so many breaks. That's all people want. They just don't want to do it. They just need a day away from you and the pressure and the whole thing to get themselves together and then come back and do the great job that you Mm -hmm. want them to do. Then they can cover the classrooms. Then they can feel refreshed in doing that. But we just sometimes need that. And to them, they just thought it seemed like, what? What do you mean just a day off? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like, don't go. Like, you know, when you call into work sick, but you're not sick. Like, <laughs> yeah, let them play hooky a couple times. I mean, many in the business community have said we just stop calling them sick days, right? Like you just get personal days, do what you need to do. Like, we don't care. Like everybody has other things to do, mm-hmm. right? And, and you just sometimes need that refresher to go to a movie at noon, right? And eat some popcorn and your kids are in school and you're left alone and it's okay. But we have to create that as the culture versus this culture of constantly doing more, constantly taking on more, which means we have to do our own personal work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to pause and pausing isn't comfortable because we're left with us. Yeah. And we might not like us right now. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but it also is helpful when the culture starts to, when leadership in these certain areas start to say, well, the day is off. So if you need, if you need to go spin off and be productive to cover up your own stuff outside of your fine, but they're at least enabling this process rather than enabling, um, where were you and why didn't you show up and why don't you cover every classroom and, um, making people feel guilty for not staying late. Right. Right. So that's the culture that we're, and then saying, why is everyone so burnt out? What's the problem? Why don't people want to stay in teaching? Right. That's, I mean, it's just a hot place right now. Why don't people want to stay in nursing? I don't know. You can't continuously work people very long hours for very low pay for very long periods of time and think, I want to stay here and do this work. Yeah. And I do think we're seeing that shift. I think that social media has helped with that. And um, I definitely think that we're starting to see that shift with people feeling a little bit more empowered to take some control back. And, you know, we're seeing some four hour work weeks um, and some studies actually coming out about culture and productivity. So and that brings me to, so some things have changed, right? Since yeah. your experience um, in foster care and aging out of foster care, some, uh, some things have been in place to offer kids uh, like no student loans that are aging out of foster care um, and to offer kids. I missed that ticket and I'm very upset about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, so that people listening don't think. Yeah. Is that still how it is today? It's gotten a little bit. It's a yes. It's it's yes and no, right? Like most things. So um, in many states, we did something calling extending the age. So we went from, we extended from 18 to 21. The issue is, right? Like most things, good and bad with, with everything we try to do new. So we tried it. It seemed like I was a huge fan and proponent of it in the beginning. Um, but it was a voluntary opt-in, right? So You can opt in and get additional services for additional years, or you can opt out. Well, the kids who opt in, if I'm honest, are primarily kids who had supports, who had connections and had people advising them, hey, it's a really good idea to opt into this, right? And the kids who opted out, frankly, I probably would have opted out, were the kids who were struggling, who were dangling by threads, and who just didn't want the system involved in their life anymore Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it had reached so much havoc. And so we still see that. So our most vulnerable kids are not opting in, even though it's an option and they're not opting in because of the damage the system has already done Mm -hmm. with no support and no services. Right. So, so it's a yes. And it, it kind of helps, right. Um, It's great to have college paid for, but it's not so helpful if you haven't gotten your high school diploma. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So or we have if you're going to go for eight years, I don't know if that works. Right. If, it's yeah. not going to work. So like if you're a non-traditional student, right, because you need to put a roof over your head, going to school isn't a priority. So we, we haven't really thought about this going upstream. We, we're not really good about talking about uh, that my mother received no services and then had more children. Right. So so we didn't stop anything by removing me. And can we keep more kids safely at home with better services for families, knowing that most of the reasons we remove kids are for neglect reasons, which include things like no running water or no heat in the winter, right? Which has a lot to do with poverty and our views on who's deserving enough for services. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. right? I mean, mean, that's a whole conversation, the way in which we view poverty and are you deserving and why would I just pay your rent bill? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, because it's a lot less expensive if you're a taxpayer than removing a kid and thinking about just in my own case, all the lawyers, caseworkers, uh, the courthouse that's open, the judges, every 90 days, how much money we're spending just on this one child. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of studies that have been done about the ROI of child welfare. And like, you would have just been better off to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. But we get then in this like, well, they don't deserve it. I have to pay my own rent. How come I don't get free rent? Mm-hmm. Right. And so we get into this ludicrous conversation all the time about who's deserving enough in their poverty to deserve a help up versus handout, right? All of these conversations kind of come into play and it can get very politicized very quickly. But the truth is it's safer to keep kids at home and it causes less trauma to keep kids at home when we can. Mm -hmm. Now there's exceptions. Some kids are going to always have to be removed, but those are a very small percentage of the cases in which we see in child welfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had somebody else on um, that was an investigative journalist that she was talking about that um, we, we spend, we've gone too far with reunification um, where I was always like, you know, the champion for reunification, like, like everybody seems to be in this space, but she was saying like, kids are just getting caught in so many years of being in services when parents aren't, um, completing plans and there is abuse and addiction and stuff that's just continuing to happen. Um, and when, especially when the kids are young, getting to TPR within, and she said the laws are written. They're just either not followed or there's certain things that will extend things out like mom waiting the 15 months and then finally going, okay, I'm going to start rehab now. And then it extending another, however long. Yeah. We, there's a lot of bias in those statements too, right? Because I, I think addiction is a great example. I mean, this is a country where not that long ago, if a parent tested positive for marijuana, their children were automatically removed. In that same state, recreational marijuana use is legal. Right? Like our views on this conversation vary greatly. And so the bias attached to that is also great. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a social worker, I would always ask, like, I, I would say, you know, is drug use alone? um, like neglect or reason to remove kids. Right. And it was always like, no, they'd have to have needles out paraphernalia where the kid could grab it and use it themselves or stick themselves. And so I, I felt like it was, it did have to escalate to a level of. Yeah. But that's not the case for every worker as you probably know, right? Like, and it has a lot to do with the worker's own personal view and bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't. Right. Yeah. Uh, This is this is unconscionable for a child to live this way. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, I was just on a book club meeting with with a group of ladies. And I said, you know, kids are removed because there's no running water. And one of the women who was older said, what do you mean? I grew up on a farm. We didn't have running water. We went to the well and had to heat it. No one ever considered removing us. Right. But it's this idea of like our our experiences shape us and shape Mm -hmm. our bias and shape where we have blind spots on mm-hmm. what we think is tolerable or not. And it's a really big issue. I mean, we, we know we just force disproportionately remove children of color 
mm-hmm. and indigenous children at higher rates than white children. So for the same behaviors, right? So two moms where marijuana use is an issue, depending on their race, there can be very different things that are done and how it's handled. Right. Right. It's, it's clear in the data. Like you can't deny it. It's so clear. Mm-hmm. And so then people said, well, let's do blind removals. Well, if you do blind removals, yes, it can help with this idea of disproportionality, but you're also not been helping the whole person, mm-hmm. right? Our relation to our culture and our spirituality and our religion is one of the ways in which we build religion right. or build resilience, yeah. Yeah. right? So like when we do these things in these confined boxes, they can help in some ways and then they can harm in others. And there's a lot of these gray areas. It's, it's not just yes and, right? Mm-hmm. It's individually. And I think when we try to legislate, this is what we're going to do for every case, we get in a problem. Mm-hmm. Because some cases do need more than 15 days or three months or six months to TPR. They really truly do for lots of valid reasons. Mm-hmm right? And some cases don't. And But when we do this all or nothing, you know, every kid should be adopted, every kid should be reunified, right? We, we swing in that pendulum quite frequently. Mm-hmm. And neither of those are the right answers. It's all of these different shades below. Mm-hmm. And I say things like, well, so when do you age out a family, even this idea of extending services to 21? I mean, most people I know who have parents in their lives, right? I won't say even if they're healthy relationships, but just have parents in their lives, a traditional family, like they're still like see their parents for holidays or call their parents if they need something, right? In their 60s and 70s and 80s to get advice. So like, what about all these kids? And we're talking about a half a million kids a year, by the way. We're not talking about a small population a half a million with the numbers increasing every year are aging out. Like ultimately then, you know, we get a good stack of 50 or 60,000 that are aging out connected to nobody. So Mm -hmm. then everyone says, Oh, they just went back to their family. Well, where else did you want them to go exactly? And they went back to all these unhealthy relationships. Well, there was nowhere else for them to go. Right. And we need to be connected and rooted to something. Mm. I love that. You know, I talk about this in my book that I went back to uh, to my stepfather who was a big abuser in my life. And I had aged out of the system and I was on my own because being with someone who would hurt me was better than being with no one. And I knew what I was doing. I was conscious of what was going to happen. And I still did it because we're humans and we're wired to be social and we're wired to be with other humans. We're not wired to be isolated. And, and, you know, I used to talk about that. And I think people thought, you know, like, she's just like beating this dead horse, basically, right. And then COVID happened. And we saw isolation in mass and people went, we're not wired to be isolated. I mean, people were like, I got to get my hair cut. I got to go do stuff, right? Because it's like, we're not wired to be alone. Yeah. And I mean, everybody's felt the feelings of being somewhere where they don't belong and being somewhere where they do. And even if we rationally know the group that we don't belong in may work out better for us if we stick it out, we, we don't feel welcome. We don't feel like we belong. So we're going to go where somebody cares about us. Somebody says we can be there. We're welcome. We're not a burden. 
and that yeah. feels better. Yeah. So, so we don't like rationalize, you know, you're going to go where you, you fit in. I mean, you're going to go where you fit in. Yeah. I have this friend who was adopted, right? So I wasn't adopted, but I have a friend in care who was adopted at roughly the same age that I was in care. So we, we have similar experiences, but divergent experiences as well. And she tells this story about in her adopted family that every time they would go to visit the grandmother, she would say to her, aren't you just so grateful this family took you in? Hmm. And so it became this thing, like, I always needed to feel grateful. I was supposed to have all this joy, even though, like, even if you didn't have that experience, just in any family, you don't always feel grateful to have them. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. Like, like, they're not always. I didn't want to be people. here. Right. 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 And so she always felt this burden of, like, this, I'm supposed to be grateful for this, and somehow I'm lucky because I have this. And when she became above age, and wanted to find her biological family. Of course, everyone had a meltdown because she wasn't grateful for everything that they had done for them, which wasn't it at all. It was like, I just wanted to know my roots. Right. And she says, when I found my biological family and I'm having all this sense of guilt and anxiety about not being grateful enough, my biological family just said, we're thankful you want to spend time with us. Hmm. We're happy you're here. And then nobody could understand, like, then she felt caught because she still had feelings of abandonment from this first family, mm -hmm. right? Like she was still feeling like, like you weren't there and you made me go through all of these things. And this family was making her feel guilty for wanting to be. And she's like, so I'm really not connected to either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so even though she had this very much divergent experience from mine, she felt like I did. Like when I was in college and people like my friends would be complaining about having to go home for the weekend. And I would just be like, then don't go. Mm. Like I had no idea. It was like, but those are my people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I didn't have that. I was just like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like, <laughs> right. Cause I had that freedom and I talk about it quite often. Like, Oh, like when friends are going through their families going through stuff, I'm like, I don't know. That's I can't, I don't know. I don't have to deal with any of that. Like, I don't have to care for a sick parent. I don't mm -hmm. have, you know, there are other pieces that come along as you age where you're like, oh, here's some benefits of this thing that happened mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. that now other people are struggling with and trying to find. And again, it's that balance, right? It's mm -hmm. that, do we have good boundaries? Do we know what our tolerations are, right? There's that personal development piece of us that, that has to be addressed. And sometimes it's just easier to let guilt and let what we know take over right. and not understand that we find ourselves in a reenactment or that we find ourselves um, in these situations. Totally. Absolutely. All right, guys, that's part one. I hope you enjoyed it and you will join us at the end of the month on the last Wednesday of the month for part two. I will talk to you then.